0: Well, as we all know, it's not unusual to see sudden changes of weather in West Texas, is it? <laughs> We've seen a lot of that in uh, recent weeks. I know that you can be sitting, this time of year, you can be sitting outside kind of enjoying a bright sunshine on a warm, sunny day, when all of a sudden there's a cool breeze that starts to come in and the winds pick up, the clouds roll in, and you can smell rain in the air, right? Right? And that's when you know things are about to change. Well, in our study of Romans so far, we've had lots of warm days and plenty of sunshine. Paul has given us a steady flow of some very comforting truths, truths about how we've been justified by faith, how we've been covered by grace, how we have peace with God through faith in Christ alone. He's talked about the freedom that we have from sin's condemnation, the freedom that we have from sin's control, and all of these are incredibly comforting truths. But now here in chapter 9, the air turns cool, the clouds start to roll in, and just like the weather in West Texas, we know that some things are about to change, because normally, If you look at Paul's other letters, you would expect for him to transition from these deep and powerful theological truths right into the practical application into our everyday lives. That's his pattern. But in chapters 9 through 11, in his letter to the Romans, he does something very different. Over the next three chapters, Paul will wrestle with the problem of Israel's unbelief. And as we will see this morning, it is absolutely heartbreaking for Paul. Because no other nation has received direct revelation from God as has Israel. Revelation that points to Jesus as the promised Messiah. And yet, many in Israel still do not believe. And one of the primary reasons, I think, is because many in Israel believe that salvation is a birthright for the Jew. They gain interest in, or entrance into heaven by following Jewish customs. So instead of looking for a Savior, they rely on religious traditions. Now, I know that most of us, probably none of us this morning, are a part of the nation of Israel. There are not many Jewish folks that uh, are a part of our church body, although we do have some. And yet, we can all still fall short in the ways that we see Israel does in Scripture. Because here's the reality. We live in a culture of self-determination. We are a people of personal choice. We see truth is relative and unique to each individual's point of view. You do you is the common mantra that we hear in our world today, which is why people are so offended by the idea of absolute truth, where in fact there's only one right answer. And as a result, Much like the Jews during Paul's day, we develop our own traditions and ideas. We become the author of our own salvation and overlook, as they did, our desperate need for a Savior. We lose sight of a sovereign God who offers salvation as a gift of His mercy and grace. We make it our story about God instead of God's story about us. And so as we enter into these next three chapters, let me give you some encouragement for some things I would ask you to consider um, because these are challenging chapters. The first one is this. Always remember, always remember that God is the author and creator of life far above the limits of our own humanity. Salvation is His idea. This is His plan, and we are not the author of our own redemption. Our greatest hope is the mercy of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He must be high and lifted up, far above any of our own opinions and ideas. So hold on to that thought. The second thing is this. We have to preserve the integrity of divine mystery. We have to preserve the integrity of divine mystery. We must accept the fact that we will not find a satisfying answer to every theological question. In fact, if you have all the answers and you've removed all the mystery, then you have undoubtedly created heresy. We have to protect the integrity of divine mystery. Just listen to how Paul closes his thoughts on these three challenging chapters. He says in chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. And unfathomable his ways. Does that sound like someone who's found all the answers? It doesn't, does it? Finally, as we look at these last three or these next three chapters, we need to consider them as a whole, kind of as a single unit. So don't make any definitive conclusions until we work through all three chapters. Chances are, if you've come up with a clear, distinctive answer before you get to the end it's very possible that that answer is wrong. So wait until we finish and let God work through His Word. Come to a place of of humble surrender and and not a place of prideful accomplishment. You see, these three chapters, don't miss this, these three chapters are filled with Christ-exalting, God-glorifying god glorifying absolute truth, truths to which we submit, even if we don't fully understand. Because behind these truths is a God who is worthy of our praise, a God who extends the hope of redemption through his infinite mercy and grace. And that's where we want our hearts to be. So before we open up his word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to come to you and lift you high and exalted, far above any of our own opinions and ideas. We want to submit ourselves and surrender ourselves to the absolute truth of your infallible word. Lord, we confess that this is This is difficult in our culture in which we live because in some ways we've been trained to to think for ourselves, to live independently, to be self-determined, and yet when it comes to salvation according to your plan, it is ultimately a decision of surrender. So I do pray this morning, even as we come to your word, that we come with hearts of surrender, that we lay ourselves down before you, a holy and righteous God, and may your absolute truth speak deeply into our hearts this morning. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, turn to Romans chapter 9, and if you would follow along with me, beginning in in verse 1, Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul writing, says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of as sons in the glory of the covenants in the giving of the law and the temple sacrifice or service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all. God be blessed forever. Amen. After a study of comforting truths, Paul abruptly just kind of changes direction on us and reveals the burden of his sorrow in grief. He tells us in this passage that his heart breaks for his kinsmen who have rejected the revelation of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. And I want you to know this is not some passing emotion. This is an absolute motivation for Paul's continued work of ministry. He is compelled to persevere because of his heart for the lost. He often describes his own life as a drink offering being poured out for the sake of those he loves, people that he loves so much that he would forfeit his own salvation if it meant someone else could be saved. Now I got to be honest with you, I read that and it is absolutely unfathomable to me. We need to understand that what Paul is saying here is that he would be willing to go to hell, to be cut off from Christ, to be eternally separated from a life-giving relationship with God if it means that someone else could be redeemed. It's just incredible to me. See, Paul's primary motivation, unlike what we see many times in our world today, is not what he can gain from being a Christian. His ministry was a model of the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. He was driven by desire to see others, for others to see God's love for them. And so Paul revisits all the ways that God has made that love known to the nation of Israel, a nation set apart to reveal God's redemptive purposes to the world. And not because they earned some special privilege to be God's chosen people. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, where it speaks of Israel and it says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Paul is helping us understand here that that Israel was the recipient of God's unmerited mercy and grace. They were set apart, adopted as sons, chosen by God to be uniquely related to him. And because of this special relationship with God, the the nation of Israel received special revelation from God. His glory was consistently revealed among them all throughout their history. You can think back to when he led them by a fire by night and a cloud by day. How his presence filled the tabernacle and then later the temple, how he spoke audibly to his people. His voice could be heard at the Mount Sinai. In addition to his presence, God gave them his word. He spoke to them through covenant promises. Promises to, to bring them a, a land, a seed and a blessing. A land in which they would live. A seed through which their Savior would be born. Who would become not only a blessing to them, but a blessing to All the world. And that blessing would ultimately come through the nation of Israel. God gave the Israelites the law. A code of conduct that that reflected His own holy character. He gave them the temple sacrifices. Revealing His requirement for the forgiveness of sin. He gave them the promised Messiah who would become that sacrifice for their sin. In all of this, every single thing pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul was grieved. Because despite all these special privileges, many in Israel still relied on religious tradition. Instead of trusting in their Savior Jesus Christ. Paul would give anything, including his own salvation, to see people come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at how he continues in verse 6. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. See, the statement that Paul makes there at the beginning of verse 6, you need to look at that again because I believe it is the... The main idea, the central topic of the next three chapters. Yes, Paul is greatly disturbed that many in Israel, God's chosen people, have chosen not to believe. But their unbelief is not because the word of God has failed. He did not make a mistake in his original plan, so now he's scrambling to come up with plan B. That's not what's happening here. God worked through the nation of Israel even in the midst of their unbelief. Paul then proceeds to explain that sovereign work of God. Begins with the example of Isaac, son of Abraham. And he did so knowing that Abraham had multiple offspring. Not only did we, did we know of Ishmael, who was... Isaac's brother, born through the maidservant, Hagar. But Abraham actually had six other children by his second wife after Sarah died. But God told Abraham, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So the nation of Israel were all descendants from Isaac and not Abraham's other children. That's why Paul says they came through uh, the of the promise, not children of the flesh. Israel exists by God's sovereign choice and the miraculous fulfillment of his promise to bring a child from a woman who had been barren her entire life. Paul is making the point that there is only one path That leads to the promised Messiah. And God sovereignly chooses what that path will be. And that choice was not made by the merits of individuals. God made his choice in order to fulfill his promise. And here again, let me repeat the main topic. His word does not fail. Look at I continues in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. And she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For for though the twins were not yet born and had done had done had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So as the story continues, we know that Isaac marries Rebekah. And they have twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, unlike Isaac and his brothers, these two offspring share the same mom, which means they come from the exact same lineage. But God told Rebekah that the older will serve the younger, which is the exact opposite of what you would expect to happen. Because typically, the lineage of the family passes through the oldest son. In this case, it would be Esau, because he was born first. But God, or Paul says that God chose the lineage of this family, before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they had any opportunity to do right or wrong. So God did not choose Jacob based on the, his moral integrity or good behavior. The point here is that God's plan of redemption is determined by His sovereign choice. And this plan is not influenced by the merits of human intervention. The blessing of the firstborn was not a divine right. God made a promise. And he ultimately will determine how that promise is fulfilled. But then there's verse 13. Just as is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And we need to be really careful. As we seek to understand what is being said here. Because personally, I do not believe that this is an issue of election and rejection. In other words, God did not despise Esau because of his sin and then loved Jacob because of his obedience. After all, Jacob was not exactly a model of moral character, was he? In fact, he spent most of his life working his way through life with deception and manipulation. God's plan is not influenced by the merits of human intervention. And think about this. If an all-powerful God despised the existence of a person, how long would you expect that person to exist? Right? And yet God graciously gave Esau provision and protection. Interestingly, just in my daily reading, it wasn't even a part of my sermon prep, I ran across example of this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter two, verse two. It says there, and the Lord spoke to me saying, you have circled this mountain long enough, now turn north and command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau who live in Sierra. And they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not provoke them. For I will not give up any of their land. Even as little as the footstep. Because I have given Mount Seir to Esau. As a possession. You shall buy food from them with money. So that you may eat. You shall also purchase water from them with money. So that you may drink. See Esau was not chosen by God to fulfill God's plan, but he was still the recipient of God's mercy and grace. In this context, I don't believe that we're dealing with the issue of salvation and damnation. Instead, what Paul is clearly trying to do for us is to validate God's unfallible word through his sovereign choice. And as such, love and hatred is bringing forth the idea of priority within that choice. Much like when Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be in my disciple." Now, clearly, Jesus does not teach Christians to be cruel to other people or even to despise their own life. What he is saying here, though, is that our relationship with God must be our highest priority. So much so that in terms of faithful devotion, this is the only right choice. And when it comes to God's plan. There is only one right path that leads to the promised Messiah. And it is God who determines what that path will be. God's word did not fail. Even though many in Israel failed to follow God's word. But even their failure did not disrupt God's infallible plan of redemption. Look at how he continues in verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul asks the question, if it's God who decides, if he's sovereignly in control, are his decisions unjust? And his answer is clear. May it never be. After all, who are we to determine what is right and what is wrong? You see, there are only three persons in the Trinity, not four. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that means it does not include me or you. Because unlike God, our choices are made with limited understanding. But our God is all-knowing. Our Power is limited. We only have so much capacity and abilities, but God is all-powerful. We are limited by time and space, but He is present everywhere at once. So you tell me, who do you want controlling the affairs of this world, Him or us? In the same way that you wouldn't walk into someone's house and just start calling the shots, We shouldn't step into the world God has created and start telling him what to do. Paul highlights the example of Moses and Pharaoh to help make his point because these two grew up in essentially identical situations. They were both born and raised in a palace. They were both educated by pagan beliefs. They were both influenced by pagan ritual and pagan traditions. But we know that God had mercy and compassion on Moses. And once again, not because Moses was flawless. He actually took the life of another man. But God took someone who was once a murderer and made him his messenger. But only because Moses was willing to surrender. Pharaoh, on the other hand, was not. And we need to understand that God knew this from the very beginning. We know that's true because of what's written in Exodus chapter 3 verse 19 where it says, but indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain, or excuse me, but I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So Pharaoh would willfully choose to rebel against God And God would sovereignly choose to harden Pharaoh's rebellious heart. But there's a reason behind this decision, and we can't miss this either. These are not just arbitrary decisions being made by God, although he has that right. There's always a purpose, and that purpose is always redemptive. God explains to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, he says, But indeed, Here's the reason. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. God mercifully revealed his power to Pharaoh. And he used that experience to proclaim his name through all the earth. And he did all these things with a redemptive purpose in mind. He's ultimately inviting us to believe. See, God increased the hardness of Pharaoh's willfully rebellious heart. Because unlike Moses, God knew that Pharaoh was unwilling to surrender. God chose to work through the humility of Moses and he also chose to harden the rebellious heart of Pharaoh. And it all happened according to God's perfect plan. He tells us He shows mercy to whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. But don't miss this. God does not make people become someone they did not already choose to be. God does not make people become someone they did not already choose to be. He hardened Pharaoh's rebellious heart. God is always faithful. And His word does not fail. We may not understand His decisions, but we can always trust His character. Because everything, and I mean everything God does, has a redemptive purpose in mind. His actions are always motivated. And I mean Always motivated by his mercy and grace. Which leads us to an important question as we think about our passage this morning. Will you be the one who hardens his heart or the one who surrenders his life? Will you be the one who hardens his heart or will you surrender your life? Because there's so much, if you had not figured this out in life yet, there's so much in life that we cannot understand. There are so many questions that we just don't have answers to. So will we rely in the absence of those answers on our own reason and logic, choosing to kind of chart our own course in life, or will we trust in God's promise and rely on His infallible Word? I think so many times when we look at these verses, we kind of become alarmed at the idea of God choosing and, and directing the course of His plan. We're worried about the hardening of hearts and the display of His mercy. But the point Paul is making should bring incredible comfort to us. We worship a sovereign God who does everything with a redemptive, Purpose in mind. He is a God who is faithful to his promises, a God who is full of mercy and grace. He has proclaimed, as he promised he would, he has proclaimed his name through all the earth. He has revealed his love through Jesus Christ. Even if we do not belong to the nation of Israel, he has gone to such great lengths to make himself known to us. But salvation is ultimately a decision of surrender. It is the understanding that our destiny is not self determined. Our choices are always, and again, I mean always, in response to God's infallible word. We must exalt Him for who He is, and not define Him based on what we would do. When we believe in God, we let God be God. We exalt Him for who He is, and we trust Him. We trust Him for what He has done. Because even before the world began, Not to mention before Jacob and Esau were ever born. We're talking before the world ever began. God came up with his plan of redemption knowing what would happen in the sinful hearts of humanity. And he chose in that moment to send his son to rescue us from our sin. And every choice we make is in response to that incredibly merciful decision. And so, will we harden our hearts, or will we choose to surrender? When it's all said and done, God is inviting us to believe. His word has not failed, and His plan will be fulfilled. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father, I admit it is difficult in many cases, to come to a passage where we see your sovereignty so clearly on display. It makes us feel small, but it should, because we are in comparison to you. And yet, as small as we may feel, we could not be more deeply loved, more incredibly cared for, Father, may we exalt you for who you are and how you have faithfully fulfilled your promise to bring a Redeemer through the nation of Israel according to a plan that you prepared before the world began. And it has gone accordingly without exception and without fail. There is only one path to the promised Messiah, and you, our sovereign God, choose what that path will be. But in all of your decisions, you always have a redemptive purpose in mind. You have proclaimed your name through all the earth, and you are inviting us to believe in a God who does everything with mercy and grace and redemption in mind. So, Lord, may we exalt you for who you are and praise you for your goodness and mercy and grace. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand. Let's sing together. Well, that is good news. You know, I think one of the reasons that these chapters have historically been so difficult, in my opinion, is because we enter into it with the wrong question. We often ask, what does it say about me? It's the wrong question. We need to enter into these and ask the question, what does it say about God? And then how does that matter to me? I want you to go into the next few Sundays as we look at the remainder of these chapters with that idea in mind. And let's lift him up highly and exalted, that he is true to his word, that he's full of grace and mercy, that he's faithful to fulfill his plan to bring us a redeemer and to invite us into a loving relationship with him. That's what this is all about. So if we can keep that in mind, I think what we'll find is not unsettling verses, but incredibly encouraging and comforting promises. So let's do that together, okay? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the time to come and worship you, a oh God who is worthy, oh, so worthy of our praise. I do pray, Lord, that as we enter into your word, not, not just through these challenging chapters, but I pray it would be true every time that we would come asking ourselves, what does it say about you? And how does that impact me to serve And to look at a God who is full of grace and mercy. Who sovereignly works all things to accomplish his plan. To bring a redeemer for the forgiveness of our sins. And to invite us into a life-giving eternal relationship with him. Lord, help us to grasp the magnitude of that gift. And rejoice with gratitude that we belong to you. What a comforting place to be. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.